Amen. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Romans chapter 4. But while you're doing that, I'm going to share a couple of announcements with you too. Number one, right after this service, we're having a newcomers meeting. And so if you are new to Trinity or new-ish to Trinity and want to hear from Um, Well, if you're not tired of hearing from me after this service, you can come into that room and hear from me again. Uh, We're going to be sharing a little bit about our story and our vision and our values, what guides us. It'll give you some insight into who we are and what we're about. So it's a short meeting. We'll release you for lunch and time to not starve. Uh, But we'd love to see you in the chapel right on the other side of this back wall as soon as church is finished, if you're new. Uh, And for everyone, we're going to be having a church-wide meeting tonight at 530. Uh, Normally, this would be a member meeting, but we're now opening this up to everyone who is into Trinity, calls Trinity home, whether you're a member or otherwise. In this meeting, we're going to be catching you up on some major celebrations in the life of our church. We're going to be giving you some really important updates on how we're going to approach members going forward and what the Lord is animating. We're going to celebrate God's provision. It's going to be a really, really good time. It's also a kind of quasi potluck. And so please register. We're providing mains and drinks and you can bring a side or dessert and we'll just share a meal and we're going to hear about the life of the church. It'll be from 530 to 7. Um, so please sign up, come. We'd love to see you tonight. Uh, and also there are resources in our bookstore about studying through the book of Romans through the summer. Um, and speaking of Romans, we're We're going to be in Romans today. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans 4. And I would hope and encourage you to pick up this N.T. Wright study. Um, He is a brilliant biblical scholar. Uh, I am quite literally a fanboy. I will tell you a story about N.T. Wright. Um, He's at Oxford uh, and is a professor now. He used to be the Bishop of Durham. Uh, uh, We lived in England. I was a youth pastor. And lots of the kids who grew up in my youth group in England ended up going to Durham University. And he taught them, did a lot of their weddings, baptized their babies. Um, he is a, he's a treasure in the church, and there was a time many years ago where he was at Emory lecturing, and I, um, I'd like to say I bought him dinner, and that's true. I did. I paid for the meal, but it was also like including like 15 other people, but he was there. So I can say with credibility, N.T. Wright and I, we shared a, a dinner together one time. It was awesome. Um, I'm still so thankful that I was able to spend all that money. Um, to be with one of my heroes. (laughs) Okay, if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans 4. Uh, For the next little bit of time, we're going to be in the book of Romans. And I'm going to say this before we read and pray. Um, Romans uh, is like joining a CrossFit gym. You think it'll be awesome. You might get injured. And it's super intimidating. Um, People like Romans because they want to be super wicked smart. Uh, And so lots of um, guys say, let's do a Romans Bible study because they think like it's like diving into the deep end. And in a real sense, it is. Paul gets so uh, ratcheted up in Romans that he has like 90 word sentences in the Greek language. Like Paul gets going in certain parts of this book where he just forgets to put punctuation in. I mean, you want to talk about a run-on sentence. I mean, he's got some epic run-on sentences in this book. What we're going to do is we're going to try to hear what the text is saying, but we're not going to live in our heads. For the next little bit of time, we're going to try to push through these big thoughts that Paul is sharing and honor them for what they are. And then we're going to try to push down into Monday afternoon. Because your life with God has to work, not just in a Bible study, but it has to work on Monday afternoon. 
Like it's got, the rubber's got to hit the road. And it's my conviction that some of what we're going to be looking at over the next couple of weeks here in the church is going to push you into your lived experience. So that's what we're going to focus on today. We're going to try to understand what the Lord has for us. I'm going to read the first five verses, and then we're going to skip to verses 13 through 17 in Romans 4. Paul says, What then are we to say was gained by Abraham, our ancestor, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as something due. But to one who without works trusts him, who justifies the ungodly, such faith is reckoned as righteousness. Let's go down to 13. For the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. If it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. For this reason, it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham. For he is the father of all of us, as it is written. I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for these kiddos that were baptized into the faith that goes all the way back and is the faith of our father Abraham. God, I thank you that there are some people here who've spent time in VBS and already they're thinking about Father Abraham having many sons. Lord, we pray that you would help us to recognize that those of us who believe are the daughters and sons of Abraham, that we're a part of a story that is way bigger than us. Help us to see the barriers to inclusion in that story. Help us to hear what you are actually promising and how it's different from maybe what we've been taught. We pray that we would say yes to you, even when we don't exactly know what's coming next, just like Abraham did. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing that Paul is getting people to think about is this question, what makes us secure before God? The church that Paul's writing to was facing lots of tension. The early church, and, and, and frankly, the entire New Testament, you see threads of tension in this newly forming Christian community. And, and here's the tension. The early, oh, by the way, we had kids camp this week. So disco balls are up here and we just felt like we should leave them up so that you would know that like some really, really fun stuff was happening during the week. And so this is not like a permanent fixture. Like when I had the skull on the lectern during Lent, um, we're not now a disco ball church, but you just need to know there were like over a hundred kids in this building learning about Jesus and sliding down water slides and doing arts and crafts and really being formed in a fun and celebratory way. And I just want to say, I love when I look out my office and see like hundreds of kids running around and being formed in their faith. It was an amazing week at Trinity Camp. So that's why we have disco balls out there. So the early church, back to my sermon, the early church, I forget that it's there until I walk out in the front and then I'm like, oh, I should probably mention the disco balls. Almost all Jews because Christianity arose out of the Jewish faith. 
So by the time Paul is writing and he's asking this question, what makes us secure before God? Um, there were Jews and Gentiles, so Jews and non-Jews that were trying to figure out how to be in the church. And if you had asked a Jew who made up the lion's share, the vast majority of the early church, what makes you secure before God as a Jew? They would have said two things. Well, I'm Jewish. I have the blood of Abraham in my, in my body and I faithfully obey the law. So two things would have made you secure as an early church Christian who happened to be Jewish. That was what you were taught. I'm Jewish, I obey the law. So then what do we do with all these people who aren't Jewish that are coming into the faith? People who had heard Jesus, who had seen Jesus, who had witnessed the miracles of Jesus. And they were like, I wanna get in on that as well. They were outsiders and the Jews were insiders. Now today, the vast majority of Christians around the world are Gentiles and the minority are Jews. But back then, there was an insider-outsider dynamic around ethnic Jews who said, I'm secure because I'm Jewish and because I obey the law. So what Paul was dealing with was this tension around insider-outsider dynamics. And I know that this reality 2,000 years ago, I mean, isn't it interesting that in the early church, they were dealing with racial and ethnic tension? Does that sound familiar to you? Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America, in any institution, black church, white church, Korean church, because we have a really hard time figuring out how to move together. And so our struggles in many respects are not terribly different than the early church's struggles. This was a major, major formational challenge for the early church. And so Paul says, what makes you secure? And basically to anyone who would have said, well, my ethnicity makes me secure or my rigorous moral compliance makes me secure. Or if we pull it into our own, in our own modern parlance, um, my, my background and my family makes me secure. The college I went to makes me secure. The job I have makes me secure. Or my Democratness or my Republicanness makes me secure. Therefore, creating insider-outsider dynamics. Do you know what Paul was trying to say to the early church and what God would say to us? If that's your thing, then your story is too small. And the truth is, all of faith, in my view, is about exchanging impoverished stories for bigger stories. It's about taking things that are so limiting that stop us from being able to see brothers and sisters and saying, I've got to trade that in for a bigger story. Paul's primary work in many respects as a pastoral writer was to say to people, you've got to have a bigger story. That which unites us is way more compelling than what we eat or where we shop. And those were their issues in the early church. Gentiles would go to the pagan butcher shops and Jews had been taught forever, don't go to the pagan butcher shops, that meat is cursed. And all of a sudden they're all trying to sit next to one another in church. And Paul is saying, what makes you secure before God? And I wanna to say to you saying yes to Jesus, saying yes to who he is and what he's done for us, that makes us secure before God. Not where you come from, not what you earn, not what you do, not how rigorous you are in your observance of what you think is the faith that you've been handed, but how do we say that which is the uniting factor is bigger than what maybe we've been taught. I think we all have stories that are too small. 
and our struggle, it's really not terribly different than the struggle of the early church. So we're in good company. Paul's asking what makes us secure. I know this too. In this room, there are people who feel like insiders and there are people who feel like outsiders. And, and, I, and I mean in this room, like sometimes at church we feel that way. Some of us feel like, you know, you know. You know the rules, you know the people. And some of you feel like you don't know. Some of us feel uncomfortable for a million reasons when we come into a space like this. But we also have a kind of insider or outsider mindset outside the walls of the church. The same was true for these ancient friends of ours. And so what Paul is saying when he makes this argument about being united in Christ is he's saying this, to those of you who feel like you're outsiders, what does it look like for you to make room for the other? To move toward people and situations that maybe you don't have a great grasp of or don't feel very familiar with. He's saying, would you let go of that kind of privileged status of being the person with leverage? And to the outsider, he's saying, would you be courageous enough to move toward the community even when there are reasons for you to stay at arm's length, even when there might be reasons for you to feel like I'm not going to be welcomed, I'm not going to be accepted, I'm not going to be loved, there's no room for me here. Some of you tonight might be afraid to come to the family meetings. You're just like, I feel like an outsider. I believe there's an invitation for movement, both for those who see themselves as insiders and those who see themselves as outsiders. Paul is making that compelling statement because the church won't work apart from that mutual movement. The second thing we see in this story is uh, Paul refers to the promise, but he doesn't define the promise. And so I'm going to define it for you. The promise that God gave to Abraham was twofold, that he would be fruitful and that he would make it through trouble. And if you know the story of Abraham, he was old. His wife was old. They were past the age of childbearing. And God made a promise to Abraham all the way back in Genesis. I think it's Genesis 12. And he says to Abraham, I am going to multiply you and you will be fruitful and you will be the father of many nations. And all the nations on earth will be blessed through you. And that includes us. So Jews and Gentiles, all the way back in Genesis 12, he made a promise to an old barren man who'd never had kids. You're going to, you're going to experience blessing through you that is generative. And you're going to endure trouble, but I'm going to see you through trouble. The promise that God gave Abraham is why we are in this room. The gift of God's goodness extended to the ends of the earth, and now you're here. I'm here. I came from a wild family of hippies doing wild things, and I'm here. Some of you come from backgrounds of addiction and brokenness and infidelity and hurt, and you're here. The promise extends to us. And the thing about Abraham that I believe is applicable, if he is the father of this faith in many respects, and you're a part of this faith, if you name Christianity, what the Lord is wanting to say to you is that which was true for him in a, in a derivative sense is also true for you. And I believe it's that the Lord has called you to be generative and you're going to run into some bumps in the road. But he can see you through those bumps in the road. The thing about Abraham that I love is that Abraham said yes before he had all the information at hand. That's the third movement. Faith reckoned as righteousness. Abraham, faith is saying yes without guarantees. 
Faith is saying yes, putting the weight of your life on it. So trust, um, I think trust can be understood in, in some ways as to place your weight on. So if you think about trust, like I trust this stool when I sit on it. A lot of us have a kind of like one butt cheek version of trust. I've lived a lot of my life this way. Like, I mean, I'm in, but if it falls apart, like I can, I'm going to be okay. When, when we're told that, that he, he believed that faith was expressed by Abraham, what, what we see here is that Abraham went into like, a, I'm putting the weight of all of my life on you, God, even before I know exactly how it's all going to feel and how it's going to turn out. That is the invitation. The invitation is belief and trust. It's to increasingly place the weight of your life, not on your own resources, but on God. Because the truth of the matter is, I can't hold myself up. I mean, I can for a minute, but not forever. A couple of years ago, I, I tore my, um, my meniscus in, in Colorado. Wit hooked me up with, I don't know if those were um, illicit drugs, but they were super helpful because uh, we were going to, Wit's not a drug dealer, um, I promise. I don't think. Uh, and I, I tore my meniscus before going into the backcountry and spending uh, like five days with backpacks on our backs and, and hiking and climbing. And it was, it was bad timing. And in true kind of cheapskate, ignore medical needs fashion, I waited about nine months to get my knee repaired. And what happened over that nine months was kind of analogous to what we do sometimes is we try to work around like soul injuries and then we kind of get to a point to where we think we can manage it. But during that period, I, I began to kind of favor and, and work around something. And I gave up a lot of things that were really life-giving to me, like running and doing things that were really like satisfying to my soul around exercise. And after I got surgery, it took me another year and a half to begin to trust that I could actually go back into a space of placing my weight on my body. What I found in my own life is that which is true in the physical is often also true or there's analogy for it in the spiritual. Abraham said yes without knowing how hard it was going to be. He knew that there would be hardships, but y'all, Abraham, he made some, he, he did some embarrassing stuff. I mean, they definitely had to go to marriage counseling. Uh, told people his wife was his sister, was like a little weird about some things and because he wanted to protect his own skin. I mean, they, they had some challenges in their life together and yet he moved through those things believing in God. We live in a world where we want guarantees. We want to know exactly how things are going to go and exactly what they're going to look like. And yet I just want to say to you, you have future complexity in front of you. And God asks you today to put as much of your yes into this relationship with him. Back to N.T. Wright, the guy I really love. We're close friends. We've had a meal together. It was great. N.T. Wright said this, uh, and I love it. He said, Abraham's faith was the sure sign 
that he was in partnership with God. I'm convinced the longer I live that the Lord wants you and me to be in partnership with him. And partnership implies trust and relationship. It doesn't imply having it all under control. It doesn't imply knowing everything, reading the fine print in the contract and knowing how everything's going to go. The faith of Abraham and the faith that God calls you to is about um, affirming your yes to God and growing in trust and relationship with him. It's why the Five core commitments that we're going to look at again tonight when we have our church-wide meeting are so important because I believe you need a little bit of a trellis, a little bit of structure around what belief and faith and trust look like. Trust flows out of relationship. Abraham said yes. He didn't say yes, but he said yes. And too often I say yes, but, and I'm working with the Lord on just affirming my yes to him, my commitment to him, knowing that life is complicated and we're not in control. Let me see. There's one thing I need to say that I'm... No, that's good enough. No, I'm going to say it. Um, In faith, no, no, not yet. Um, In faith reckoned is righteousness. I just want to point out two challenges that we run into. On one hand, what Paul is saying here is that your moral commitment is not the same thing as faith. Remember, Jews said, I'm secure because I'm Jewish and because I observe the law. So Paul here is challenging an assertion that if you just do all the right things, you'll be fine. Okay? So moral rectitude is not faith. On the other hand, Paul, the guy who wrote this story, elsewhere, over and over and over again, affirms the call to holiness. So what we have is a tension that faith is not just about works, but the holiness that God asks of us, that he requires of us, are an outworking of our trust in him. And so there's this tension. Paul's not here just teaching pure systematic theology. He's saying your life is about belief, about a yes, and your life will manifest certain outcomes and fruits, but it's not ultimately about reverse engineering. That's like really grown-up stuff. Faith reckoned as righteousness. It's neither just say yes to God and then live however you want. It's also not live rigorously And put all the weight on you. It's somewhere in the middle. God's wanting us to live in a tense place where we're saying yes to him and hoping for the outcome of a life that's demonstrative of being connected to him. Here's the last thing. Only God is able to call no things or nothings into existence. Remember, Abraham was past this stage. He and Sarah passed the stage of childbirth. They were nothings dead end roads. Only God is able to take that which is barren, dead, impossible, and make it fruitful, alive, and possible. Only God can do that. So what I want to ask you to do is like Abraham, I want you to look at your life and think about the places that feel impossible. I believe that this is another aspect of faith where our stories are too small 
many of us, we stop praying risky prayers for fear that we'll be disappointed. Like we stop praying about that relationship that's broken or that sin pattern in our life that we wish we were free of or that hope that's been deferred and it's made our hearts sick because we're afraid of being disappointed. And so what we do when we become cynical is the longer we live, the more we put real life at arm's length and we play it really safe. What we do is we, I think, erect dams that just stop the tide. They stop the water from overwhelming us. But the problem with a dam is it stops good water and bad water. It stops the hard stuff maybe, but it also stops the opportunity to see and be met by God, to have God do something where there was nothing there. Abraham said yes to God, and God brought something out of nothing. He brought possibility out of impossibility. Where are you facing nothings? Where is there a no thing at play in your life? Where does this life or parts of this life feel impossible? I believe the Lord wants us to be more courageous. I think the Lord wants us to put our yes into that space, not just into the safe spaces. But this is where the the faith thing becomes real. It's where the faith thing becomes, um, maybe it's like gut check time. Like, will I say yes? Will I follow the example of Abraham and say yes? Will I follow the example of, of Mary, like we sang in that song, and say yes? Will I follow the example of David and say yes? Will I follow the example of Moses at the Red Sea and say yes? That song is so powerful because I, we've all got our own Goliaths. And some of us Maybe many of us have been playing it too safe for too long and you're just diminishing. If I live my life this way, I might prevent myself from being punched in the stomach, but I also prevent myself from being embraced. And many of us have a posture of defensiveness toward people in the world. Many of you learned that early on. It was the way you survived and yet... There's a kind of risk openness that I believe God calls the people of faith into that actually might mean you get hurt occasionally, but it will also mean that you might actually be embraced by God and embraced by others. But that's hard work. So here's the question I want us to hold. Where do you need God to do something that you cannot do on your own? We're going to spend a few moments in silence. We're going to hold this question for a couple of minutes. I would encourage you to take a picture of it if you'll be prone to forget and spend some time journaling about this. And what I'm doing in my own life is I'm actually naming my nothings and I'm asking God, what would it look like if you entered into that nothing, into that impossibility? And then we begin to pray into that and ask him every day. And y'all, you don't have to be an expert to pray. All praying for, for many of us looks like in a visceral way is like, God, enter, would you show me what you being in this relationship looks like? How, how are you entering in, God? How would you enter in? What would it look like if you were entered in? And the more you think about it and talk about it and journal about it, the more clear it becomes. And then the more you're looking for the work of God. So we're going to be still for a few moments and then we're going to come to this communion table. But first, let's hold this question and be courageous in how you answer it in your heart before God.